Psalm 103. That's what we'll look at today. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we read these verses, that we were hearing the literal voice of God, the word of God. We thank you, God, that you have spoken to us completely, finally, God, in this marvelous book that we call the Bible. Lord, thank you that we have this gift. We're reminded of so many of our brothers and sisters who would love to have what we have probably multiple copies of. You've given us great privileges here in the United States. And Lord, we take that for granted. But this morning, we acknowledge you as the giver of such a great gift of living in this country right now. So Father, our prayer today is that you'd help us and give us understanding in your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the concept of worship... The concept of worship uh, is something that dominates the Bible. From Genesis through Revelation, worship is a dominant theme. If you could say a theme, it really dominates everything in Scripture. From Genesis, we discover that the fall of humankind came as a failure to, in essence, worship God by obedience. When we come to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we learn that history and everything culminates around the throne of the Lamb in worship. That's how the Scripture ends. So from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, the doctrine of worship is something that is wrapped and baked into really almost, you could say, every page of Scripture. Jesus affirmed this when he quoted Moses... In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, uh, when Jesus quoted the Shema, the Hebrews called the Shema. Just listen as I read it. I don't think it's on the screen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In other words, there's not a fiber tissue cell that we being his creatures should not be dominated by worshiping God. Now sometimes we think of worship, we immediately think about what we do here on Sunday, and this is a definite part of worship. We think of worship, and again, uh, regarding, well, my likes or dislikes to worship music or some aspect of that, but worship in its very essence is ascribing worth to God. And the Bible certainly does that. Think with me in the Old Testament of how worship is emphasized even in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, how it was the focus of the people of God. For example, the tabernacle. If you're familiar with that in the beginning, which was a prototype of ultimately became the temple, and then later Jesus is the temple. But the tabernacle, think about if you know a little bit of the, the history uh, of Scripture, how it was designed and specifically placed and laid out to facilitate worship. Uh, the description of the tabernacle in the Old Testament is in uh, the book of Exodus. And it's interesting, in the description of the tabernacle 
and the specifics of how the tabernacle was to be laid out with the 12 tribes of Israel surrounding it is 243 verses in Exodus, just related to that. I mean, creation in Genesis is only 31 verses. So that should give you a little clue that, hey, this is kind of important, right? The tabernacle was exclusively designed for worship, okay? They didn't play bingo in there, all right? It wasn't covered dish dinners. It was designed specifically for worship. It was the place in that, co- in that dispensation that God met with his people. And to use it for anything other than the specific things and the ways that God had specifically prescribed was forbidden and brought God's judgment. Uh, They didn't use it if they wanted to have a meeting, if they wanted to have a tribal committee meeting or whatever, uh, they did it somewhere else. They didn't meet in the tabernacle. Uh, It wasn't there for entertainment. They went there knowing, and even then, there was limited access only reserved for the Levites and the priests, but it specifically was intended in its placement in the camp with the tribes around it that the worship of God was to be the center of activity and the life of what of, of God's people. And so if that's true under the old covenant, how much more is its importance in the new covenant, right? Uh, the tra- tabernacle was at the center Uh, Next to it were the priests who led in the worship. A little farther out from the tabernacle were the uh, Levites. Uh, They were were given the task of overseeing and involvement in the service. Uh, And beyond that, as I mentioned, were the tribes, and they all faced the center of the tabernacle to worship. All of that is just an example, one example of how worship is emphasized and underscored in the Bible. Remember, Jesus said something in John 4, 23. John 4, 23. He said, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father, it says, is actively looking. He's seeking those that would worship him. My prayer is always that he would find such people at 2320 Sleepy Hill Road on Sunday mornings at least that would be wanting to worship him. Hello? That we want to worship him. We want to, we want to, we want to be pleasing to God. You know, the reason I think, one of the reasons David was described and called a man after God's own heart was because if you know anything about David, you know that David uh, had a heart for worship. David had a heart for worship. David worshiped God in spirit and in truth. He not only knew who God was, but he knew who he was in relationship to God. And so David, in the Psalms, in this Psalm that we are going to look at this morning, uh, the beauty of the uh, of, of what we have is we get to kind of go inside and listen in and be a part of some of this intimate communion with David as he worshipped God. He understood worship. David was not a perfect man, right? We know that. But yet, God describes him as a man after God's own heart. One definition that is helpful just as we kind of move back to looking at Psalm 103 John MacArthur's book on worship called The Ultimate Priority, which is an excellent book on worship, gives just one little part of a definition I'll use. Uh, He says that worship is our innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. So worship is our responding to, the, to who God is. I quote Isaiah 6 a lot. As Isaiah had that vision of the, 
of God at the throne and surrounded and the angel, angels you know, crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy. What did he do? Oh, that's nice. No, it, it forced him in, in one sense to respond to what he was witnessing in worship and adoration to God. And so this morning, we're going to look at uh, just part one of this message uh, I've entitled The Heart of Worship, and we'll continue uh, next week, Lord willing, and uh, we're just going to get kind of as far as uh, um, before you start walking out, uh, I'll, I'll end it. Um, it's like, you know, the guest preacher was told uh, that he could preach as long as he wants, but the folks leave at noon, you know, so, uh, but I, uh, I'll have you done before noon. But I want to look at four uh, questions, and hopefully we'll get to just two of those as we uh, unpack these five verses today of Psalm 103. Four questions, and these are not original with me. Give credit where credit is due. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and his commentary in the book of Psalms had these, and uh, as Adrian Rogers used to say, if, you're, if my bullets fit your gun, shoot it. So uh, I'm going to use these four questions uh, that he had, and, uh, and I've kind of certainly added to it, but I liked how he broke it down with these four questions. The first question in Psalm 103 that we find in verse 1 and 2 is, how should a person worship God? How should a person worship God? The answer is in verses 1 and 2, and it is with all my inmost being or with all my soul. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. As I said, you know, we read Deuteronomy 6, 5, and it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, all your strength. It's not, the scripture doesn't speak of a passive indifference uh, form that we bring before God but our whole being is to be engaged. And I tell you, as I read that, it's just always a rebuke to sometimes my mindlessness that I give, when I, whether I can be in worship or I can be reading the Word, where I can be engaged in godly things, where I can be engaged in one way, but my mind is a million miles away. I'm not all in. You know, we did some messages all in. We use that phrase about being all in to Grace Church. Well, we need to be all in to who God is. God wants us all in, okay? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, not some of it, with all your soul and with all your might. We need to be uh, we need to be opposite of the people that Jesus rebuked in Matthew chapter 15, 8, where he said, this people, the people that he was, uh, his generation that he was with, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is what? Moses warned the danger of forgetfulness, but for the believer... We should not be forgetful of all that God has given us. That's why we sing that wonderful hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is Thy Faithfulness. All I have needed, what? Thy hand has provided. That's a reminder. That's us talking to ourselves, reminding us of truth, you know? And so, as I said, Moses warned the Israelites that before they were to enter into the promised land, Moses gave warning in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when he said, and this is his warning, that when they entered into the abundance of God, you know what his warning was? Don't forget God. Don't forget the one that brought you there, all right? Deuteronomy 8, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God with, uh, uh, for the good land that he has given you. Take care lest you 
forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. And he goes on to say, um, okay, it is on the screen. I wasn't sure. Uh, verse, uh, where are we at? Uh, verse 12. Let's go verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are full and you've built good houses and you're living in them. In other words, you're living well and wonderful in what God has given to you. Verse 13, and you, the, your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold, your IRA is blowing it out. And it's, no, I didn't say that, is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, verse 14, and look at the danger, where it's always a heart issue, isn't it? Then your heart, then your heart be lifted up, and you do what? You forget. You forget. You forget the Lord your God. So, all thy hand has provided All that God has provided in your life, has that drawn you closer to God? Or are you further from God? You know, you've heard me say, when people say, I feel far from God, I say, well, who moved? Who moved? There's a second question, not just how should a person worship God, but secondly is, why should a person worship God? Why should a person worship God? worship God. And the answer in verse 2, bless the Lord. It's interesting in verse 1 and 2, David is talking to himself. Do you see that? Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's okay to talk to yourself. Don't move your lips so the folks in the white jackets don't follow you. But, But talk to yourself truth. Soul, you will bless the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you feel like it. Soul, bless the Lord. He says, verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. And here it is, forget not all his benefits. David gives his own answer of why we should worship God is because of his benefits. And I want you to look with me at some of these benefits. The first benefit is verse 3 is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity. Forgiveness of sins. The first thing that David, man, did David know about forgiveness, right? Let me say that again for for the back row. If anybody knew about forgiveness, it was David, right? Yeah, I mean, David, man, he pushed the limits, right? All right, very good. Who did that? I figured it was you. Ushers, do it, do it now. Thank you. David knew about the forgiveness of God. He said the number one benefit is that God has forgiven us of our sins. You know, times when we've taken time to do a testimony service, I always say, you always, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer... You always, 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 always have one thing to give God thanks for. Always. It's not like, okay, well, da da da. No, that God has forgiven me of my sins. Now look at verse 12. Not only, it says, he says in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he what? Remove the transgressions, our transgressions from us. What's the extent God removes our sins? He is forgiveness. The Bible calls that justification. Justification. And uh, make a note, if you're not familiar with that, Romans 3, 21 through 31 is probably the most explicit uh, text that talks about our justification, our, our, our being made just as if we have never sinned before God. Our justification, it's a legal term of God declaring us righteous. Justification is this, just as a reminder. Justification, because of the cross, because of Christ, listen, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which He sees our sins as forgiven And we are now, because of being justified by God, we are now 
clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what it means, or one of the ways we define justification. And God has declared us legally as lawbreakers now. Now we are not lawbreakers, but because of one who fulfilled the law, we stand in his righteousness. My life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. So my righteousness is not my works, not my doing. It is the righteousness of Christ. When you die and go to heaven and you're asked, why are you here? It's because I'm in the righteousness of Christ because of what Christ has done. You ever think about the, uh, the thief on the cross? Remember, Christ was crucified in the middle and there was two thieves, criminals on each side. One cursed, they both cursed, but one said, remember me? <laughs> and Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. You ever wonder what it was like for that guy, when he got to heaven, and they were asked, well, why are you here? And he goes, well, I don't really know. Well, do you understand the doctrine of justification? I don't even know what that is. So the angel says, well, let me go get my supervisor. And, at, you know, and why are you here? Well, I don't know. I just know that the man on the middle cross said I could be here. That's it. That's it. The man in the middle said I could be here. There's a third, second, I'm sorry, benefit. And I'll just warn you now, this is where the train slows down. So be patient. I'm not going to try it. We may not get to the others. But we're going to talk about this second benefit, and it's healing. Verse 3, he forgives all your iniquity, and heals, who heals all your diseases. David is thankful that his healing, that God has healed all his diseases. Uh, now this verse has played an uh, important uh, role in a particular understanding of healing in uh, certain uh, aspects of our uh, Christian community, mainly among Pentecostals and Charismatics, have connected this verse with Isaiah 53, 5. That should be on the screen as well. You remember this verse? But he was pierced, and Isaiah 53 is talking about prophetically the, the crucifixion of the Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, or by his stripes, we are healed. And what has been connected with those is essentially this. And, if, you know, I, I grew up and was uh, certainly a, you know, a part of uh, this understanding, but the understanding of healing and the atonement that is, I think, misunderstood means that just as the death of Christ has immediately secured and provided forgiveness of sins, equally so, the healing and the atonement guarantees the right that you can equally be expected to always be healed. That's the understanding. Healing and the atonement. That just as my sins have been forgiven that he has provided healing and the atonement, so therefore I can always expect, because of what he has done, I can always expect healing. And so if there's a problem, and again, with some understanding, not all, but if there is a lack of healing, then the problem isn't in God because he's already done it, so the problem must be with me in not exercising enough faith or confidence in the finished work of Christ. What I want to do in just a little teaching is I really want to try to strike a balance in understanding this. So I'm going to spend a little time talking about healing. It won't be exhaustive. It won't say everything there is to say, but hopefully to strike a little balance. Because here we see, this is, this is you know, that's the thing. When you try to teach... Uh, you know, expositionally, you come across a verse, and it's like, there it is, okay, what do, you, what do you do with it? And just move on. But we're going to take a little time and try to give, a ho I hope, 
some clarity and balance to an understanding of what the Bible teaches concerning divine healing. As I said, it won't be exhaustive, and I hope it will shed some light. At least that's my desire. So any failure on my part is mine, not the Scriptures. Now, I believe that the greatest healing, the greatest healing that a person could ever have is the healing of the greatest disease that we have, and that is the healing of sin. That is crystal clear in the Scripture in Isaiah, Psalm, and the other, that man's greatest need, his greatest disease, is the disease of sin. And because of sin, all the physical manifestations of disease and sickness emanate from the fall. Okay? I think Christians universally agree with that. But I believe, and again, just bear with me, I don't take that this is exclusively talking about spiritual healing, but I believe that these scriptures can apply to physical healing, but just listen to where I'm going and what, how I, I believe try to strike some balance here, okay? And I believe the scripture is balanced. All Christians, regardless of evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal, would agree that in the atonement, in the cross, in the finished work of Christ, Jesus Christ has purchased complete freedom from sin. I think there's universal agreement among Orthodox Christians on that. And this complete freedom is not only a complete freedom from the iniquity or sin that we've been freed from, but in the atonement that we have freedom from physical weakness and infirmity because of the redemption, because of the redemption in Christ. Remember Scripture in Romans 6.14, For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. But having been set free from sin, you are now slaves of righteousness. So here's the difference. All the benefits emanate from the cross. The question is, is the when they emanate from the cross? When are they applied from the cross, all right? I believe that all Christians would no doubt agree that our full and complete possession of all the benefits in Christ, full fellowship, full relationship, unfettered access to Jesus face-to-face, those benefits including complete total healing, will only, in their totality, be fully manifested at the second coming of Christ. It is only at the coming of Christ that we receive resurrected bodies. Remember the scripture says in Ephesians 1.3 that every spiritual blessing in Christ has been given to us? Well, there's blessings that we have access to right now. But there are some of those blessings that we won't have access to until we receive perfected, resurrected bodies and we are in the presence of Christ for eternity. The issue is not if there is healing in the atonement. The issue is when do we receive this healing in the atonement? When do we see this completeness? I mentioned about resurrected bodies. Look in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. This is important. Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus in in 1 Corinthians 15. And then because of the resurrection of Christ being our first fruits, first evidence of what our physical bodies will look like. We're not going to be little Jesuses, but we will have the manifestation of a, of a new body that is not hindered of the sinfulness of the old man, all right? And so this is what he writes, and we're going to pick it up in verse 51, talking about 
and applying our resurrection. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. Something happens in our resurrection from death to life and receiving new glorified bodies. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Right now, we are perishable. We will be raised where we won't perish, and we shall be changed. He says, verse 53, for this, he's speaking presently, and again, make sure you understand, he's distinguishing between, between what is now and what is to come. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body right now must put on immortality. When the perishable, that's me right now, puts on the imperishable at the resurrection, and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then, say then. Oh, man, like like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Shall come to pass the saying, when? Then. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death. How do you die? You get sick. You get cancer. You have a heart attack. You die. The sting of death is what? It's sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to what I'm saying. So it is with, it is through the physical healing and redemption that our complete possession the, the complete possession of this redemption that we have in Christ, in one sense, yes, we have every spiritual blessing given to us right now, Ephesians 1.3, as I said. But yet, there is a future in which only that what I have in part, I will have in full. So there is an already aspect that Christ rules and reigns in victory, but there's a not yet aspect that is future. So when we say, is there healing in the atonement, I say yes. It's just, when is there healing in the atonement? Because if it was not for Jesus making atonement for sin, we would have no hope of healing in any form, whether now or later, right? It all goes back to Christ. It all goes back to the cross. The redemptive suffering of Jesus at the cross is the foundation for any spiritual benefit or blessing that we'll ever have. Whether it's spiritual or physical, it all goes back to Christ. Maybe this to me might be more helpful. Rather than saying healing in the atonement, I think it might be more accurate to say that there is healing through the atonement rather than in the atonement because that confuses maybe the issue. The question is not whether our bodies are healed Because of the atonement of Christ, the issue is the when. You see, we experience fellowship now with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit, right? Are you experiencing, am I experiencing everything in the totality of that experience right now? I mean, is there hope that there is a future in which the little, uh, listen listen to the language of, 1 Corinthians 13, 10. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes called the love chapter, all right? Well, there's more to it than that, all right? Remember what he says, and I'm picking up in the middle, verse 10. For we, and he's speaking about right now, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But then he says, but when the perfect comes, the perfect it answers. But when the perfect comes, this partial will pass away. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, 
but then face to face. Whose face do you think that is? Do you see? So what I'm saying is there is a part that we have in very small measure of healing that right now is partial. But it is not full. It is not complete. So when we say, is there healing through the atonement? We say, yes. Yes. Everything emanates from the cross. But that's different than saying, as some folks have taught, that we can always, without exception, know the will of God for your life is always to be healed. My friend, that is not true. That is not accurate. Because that is not the case. That God's will always, every time, is for you to be healed. Revelation 7, 17. This picture of Jesus in the throne of heaven, it starts out in verse 9 by speaking about a great number that no one can number that are before the throne of God. And it says in verse 17, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. This is future. This hasn't happened yet. And what? And God will do what? Wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that's language of speaking that the suffering, be it whatever, is removed ultimately completely forever someday. Not right now. Revelation 21.4. The same thought. That he, Christ, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be what? No more. And this, talking about in, in the presence of Christ, there will be no mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. Do you see that there is a future in which all of these things are brought to consummation forever, completely, totally. But in the right now, we look through that mirror. We look through that glass. Everything isn't perfect. But one day, we have that hope. So the question is, well, then what, we do, what do we do in the meantime? Do we just, okay, well... That's too bad you're sick. No. I think the Bible's clear. James 5 says it is biblical to pray for one another who are sick. That's biblical. That's prescribed. Look at James 5. It'll be on the screen. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you what? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them, anoint them with oil. There's nothing in the oil. It's just symbolic of the, can be symbolic of, we know the Holy Spirit, but again, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick, per, the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, don't, and I won't get into it, but notice the connection between sin and sickness here, okay? But we get do that another day. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, and he goes on to cite Elijah as an example. You see, it is right and biblical to pray for someone who is sick. And it is right and biblical that we can trust and believe that God, in his sovereignty, may, in mercy, bring healing to that person. I believe that's right. Now, growing up, I have been in a number of healing crusades. And I saw the same people come in, literally on beds, wheelchairs, and be prayed by, quote-unquote, the top of the top of the names. 
And you know what? They left on a bed. They left in a wheelchair. A lot of headaches, backaches, psychosomatic things. Again, I'm not saying God never heals. But I think we do great criminality an expectation that God's word does not support. Is there healing through the atonement? You bet. You bet there is. Will I experience that in totality right now? Am I experiencing salvation in totality right now? No. I'm totally saved. I'm totally righteous. And it may justified. But you understand there's a three part that I'm saved. Can't change. Secure forever. There's a part, I'm being saved, I'm not working for salvation, I mean, that's sanctification, I'm, I'm applying the gospel to my life, I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling, right? But one day, I will move from saved to being saved, that I will be what? I will be totally saved. And that includes totally, completely, 100%, physically, bodily, healed, not in this perishable body but I'll get a new body freed from sin that's going to be a good day that's going to be a good day for some of you for all of you I hope now you see that passage in James it doesn't say it doesn't say that if the sick person exercises faith, they will be healed. What does it say? It says, if you go back to verse, what, 14, go back one, if you could. Go back 14, I'm sorry. Okay, is anyone sick, among you sick? Let them, what, call for the elders. That's a specific, identifiable leadership that God has in Scripture. The elders of the church, the pastors of the church. That they are to do what? Pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay, verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith. Whose prayer is offered in faith? The sick person? The elders. So how does... So the idea that you don't have enough faith is why you're sick. That does not, that does not support that. Let me wrap it up this way. But I think this is important. Do you think this is important? I think this is important because I think we need some clarity. I'm going to say it this way. These are my words. I'm not speaking for anybody right now except me, okay? I think we need balance. We need balance. And I would say this to the non-charismatics. Be a little more expectant and passionate to pray, believe, for a person's healing. I think that's reasonable. I remember my first staff job as a pastor, or no, not a pastor, I was the janitor and the children's minister. Can you believe that? But I was. That was the job they offered, and I was in school, and that's what you did. And I remember the pastor invited me to a deacon's meeting, you know, and in Southern Baptist life, the deacons are the you know, the junta, you know, they're the ones that govern the, the body. Good men. The pastor gave me some good advice before I went in there. He says, keep your mouth shut and your ears open. And I did. <laughs> and I remember we were having an exercise where he was trying to teach pastoral skills to the deacons. And he would, had us break off into small groups and he would give give uh, little cards that would have a scenario of something they would have to do, like uh, you just got a phone call and their son is in the hospital, you know, some, and, and you kind of like, how, what do we do, right? And so I remember our group, I think it was that they got the phone call notice or something, and uh, somebody has just gotten a diagnosis from the doctor, they have stage four cancer or whatever it was, and you're going to the house, Okay, what, what do you do? What do you say? Whatever. And so, you know, they talked and all among that. 
But the one thing they never brought up, and I brought up, I did open my mouth. All the scenarios and everything they discussed had absolutely nobody said, why don't we pray for God to heal this guy? Hello? Is that crazy? No. And that's not charismatic or not charismatic. I think that's Bible. And I said, maybe we ought to pray. Yeah, 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 that'd be a good thing. Yeah, why not? Here's, okay. So non-charismatics, be a little bit more expectant. Exercise a little bit more possibility that maybe, maybe, that God might want to heal this person in this situation. But I would say to my charismatic friends, you need to be a little more balanced and not presume and declare emphatically that a person is or will be physically healed because you prayed a prayer of faith that you can assure them that their healing is as good as guaranteed. I don't think you can do that. So charismatic friends, you need to be a little bit more balanced in understanding the sovereignty of God and in the sovereignty of God, how God's sovereignty will use sickness and suffering for his purposes. Let me give you some examples and we'll be done. Notice what Paul told Timothy. Let me give you some examples. 1 Timothy 5.23. Timothy was sick. What did Paul say? No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul, the apostle, he didn't say, well, don't you have one of my prayer claws? What's wrong with you, Timothy? Don't you have faith? What did he do? He was speaking of wine in a medicinal purpose. Take a little wine for your stomach. Timothy. So does God forbid medicine? Is that a lack of faith? No. A lot of sad situations by a lot of nuts have taught to exclude medicine or medical care. And their children have wound up dead over receiving some of the most minor medical care. Because they erroneously bought into an extreme and understand, not all Pentecostals or Charismatics are extreme on this. Look at uh, Galatians 4. Not only was Paul recommending Timothy take some wine for his stomach, but Paul the Apostle was sick. He says in Galatians 4, 13 and 14, he says, As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my, what? Illness was a trial to you. You did not treat me with contempt or scorn, but you welcomed me as if I were an angel from God. Paul, man of faith, it says that he was sick. How can this be? How about Paul's companion, Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus was one of Paul's companions. He says, but I think it necessary to send back to you, he's writing to the church of Philippi, to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. I mean, Philip, uh, the church of Philippi, they were so good, they even sent this guy just to minister to Paul's personal needs, like an assistant. For he longs, verse 26, he longs for all of you and is distressed... Because you heard, now he's with him, is bothered, and Epaphroditus was ill. He's sick, and he's with Paul. Verse 27, Paul says, indeed, he was ill. In fact, he almost died. But who had mercy on him? Paul and his great prayer of faith? Nope. Who had mercy on him? Any healing at any time, anywhere, any place is a gift of God, period. And I'll say this, even if it's through doctors and technology that God, where did all this knowledge come from? Right? I'll give you one more example. 
Another guy you may not be familiar with in 2 Timothy 4.20 named Trophimus. And Paul is concluding his letter and he says, Erastus, he's just kind of going through these people, Erastus stayed in Corinth and Paul, that scoundrel, what did he do? He left Trophimus sick in Miletus. What is wrong with this apostle? Poor guy. He's with the apostle Paul. And Paul just says, well, I don't know, take some wine, take some NyQuil, I, I got to go. What's the point? Christians get sick. Christians get cancer. Christians have heart attacks. And some get healed. But God is still in control. Genesis 18.25. If you remember the dialogue between Abraham and the Lord going back and forth about the destruction of Sodom. It says a great liberating verse, Genesis 18.25. Shall not the judge of all the earth always do right? You may not understand what the judge of all the earth does. But let me tell you what. He always, always, without exception, does right. So where is my trust? Job said, though he slay me, yet, yet, I will trust him. But there is limitations that Jesus and the apostles did unique, verifiable miracles that were unique for that time and purpose that were sign gifts to authenticate their calling and authority that were unique in that time period, in that place. What's interesting is, as you move beyond Acts and you start moving into the epistles and letters in John and Peter, you don't find any, anything in their writings of any historical miracle or healing that they ever gave an account for. You'll find that the purpose of those unique sign gifts gradually begin to fade out. Now, I'm kind of hesitant to say they just all were done away because I think there's, still a, there's not going to be any more apostles. Capital A apostles, okay? There's not going to be any more, okay? There was 12 there's 12 stones in the city of Jerusalem for the 12 apostles. There's no more. There won't be any more. So there were uniqueness. Let me give you this last scripture. Because I think this is always, and again, it's hard to put everything in here. Paul said, I perceive, or this is 2 Corinthians 12, 12, sorry. I perceived and demonstrating among you, Paul's telling the church at Corinth, the marks of a true apostle. What were those marks of a true apostle? Signs, wonders, and miracles. Do you have the mark of a true apostle? No. Do I? No. Is God in his sovereignty could still do in his mercy? Yeah, I leave, that. I leave room for that. I'm not going to just lock the door, turn away the key. But is that the normality? Do you see what I'm saying? Is that the normality? And some folks need to quit chasing after every healing evangelist that rolls through town and every miracle worker selling snake oil. And they need to get their faces in the Word of God, understand what God says and what He doesn't say, and depend on living for God whether... I make it through the day or I don't. I belong to him. We'll stop there.